So, I mean, we've been saying, I've been saying this for years, right? AI is not going to replace managers or leaders, but managers or leaders who use AI will replace those that don't. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Good day, Lead the Team Nation. I've got a great episode in store for you today with Dr. Seth Dobrin, who is IBM's, yes, that IBM's first global chief AI officer. And y'all, if you don't know what AI is, well, artificial intelligence. Yes, this is not science fiction. This is the real deal. And in his role, Seth leads IBM's corporate AI strategy is responsible for connecting the development of governance, governance of AI's AI across IBM's business units with a systematic creation of business value. The commitment to human-centered AI prompted Seth to create a new methodology that helps companies develop AI strategies built on trust, providing business outcomes that are more fair, more accurate, and focused on real human needs. This methodology has helped elevate AI from simply a tool used to make process more efficient to an overarching catalyst of business transformation. And Seth was actually recognized as AI Innovator of the Year in 2021 at the Alconics Awards and named one of Corinthium's top 100 leaders in data and analytics. He's got a graduate, an undergraduate degree in microbiology and a PhD in molecular cellular biology from Arizona State University. Here comes the brain power. Welcome, Seth. Thanks, Ben. I don't, I don't know about that, but I'll take it. Thank you. <laughs> now, we're going to try to keep it as light as possible and not make you go down and explain molecular biology and AI and its depth, but we got to get this right out of the way from the get-go. What the heck is a global chief AI officer and why did Big Blue create this position in the first place? Yeah. So let me let me start with the the, the why first. So uh, it, you know when our new CEO Arvind Krishna took over almost about two years ago now, he redefined I, IBM's AI strategy and kind of unified us around two things: hmm. hybrid cloud and AI. Hybrid cloud was very well defined by the acquisition of Red Hat. So Red Hat OpenShift is our hybrid cloud strategy. Hmm. AI had kind of grown up diffusely, both organically and inorganically over time at IBM, even pre-Watson Jeopardy mm -hmm. days. So every business had their own idea of what, I, what their AI strategy was. So my first and foremost mission was to define our strategy uh, and then kind of activate the whole company towards that strategy. Yeah. Uh, you know, aligned, and, and that strategy is you know, making Watson the AI for business. And we focus on language, we focus on automation, and we focus on trust. Okay. Um, and then working across... So before oh, you get any further, though, let me start. Hybrid cloud. If someone's like hybrid cloud, yeah. sounds like part cumulus and part stratus, or strata cloud. Y'all, this is not weather we're talking about. No, no. This For those is, people, this is, what is a hybrid cloud? 
yeah. So hybrid cloud. So everyone, everyone's heard of the cloud, right? Of, of the things in the cloud. You have your iPhone, your Android, whatever it yep. is. Yep. All of yep. your stuff lives in the cloud. Yep. But the, cl- the cloud, you know, cloud is, you know, someone else is managing your compute for you, managing your infrastructure. You can mm-hmm. automatically mm-hmm. spin things up. Um, so that's what we, what cloud is from a physical kind of instantiation of it. But, you know, really, really, when we talk about cloud, we're talking about the ability to get access to software and resources when you need it. And so you can have both public cloud. So IBM cloud, AWS, Azure, Mm -hmm. Google cloud, uh, but you also have private clouds. And so you have the same kind of cloud-like infrastructure on premise And, and Red Hat uh, specifically their OpenShift uh, product is built on an open source project called Kubernetes. Uh, and this really gives you that freedom to spin things up and spin things down and have very resilient architectures. And, and the difference between you know, our for, you know, hybrid cloud compared to just companies that just have a single public cloud mm-hmm. is our hybrid cloud works across multiple clouds. Uh, and so you can use the same software on Amazon that you do on Microsoft Azure that you do on gotcha. GCP that you do on IBM that you do on your premises. And so that's hybrid cloud is Got kind it. of that consistency so see, across. So people have access to their data in multiple places, not just one. So not just one. And, and that gives them more, like you say, more resilience, more security. So if you're a business leader listening, listening now and you're like, you know what? I, I think I know we've got cloud we don't have hybrid, that's something that they should be considering, right? Because yeah, so, I mean, almost every company has hybrid cloud. It's just a matter of, can they operate across it as if it were one Got cloud? It. And yep. that's, that's really okay. what our, our, our aim is to help, you know, companies be able to operate across all clouds simultaneously because each cloud has its own value. Yep. So, so that, makes, that makes a lot of sense there. And so the artificial intelligence side, to be honest, I think a lot, I noticed when I was reading your bio, you talk about the human side of it. You talk about trust and artificial intelligence. I mean, some people are kind of freaking out right now because they're like the machines are taking over the world. And Dr. Seth is, is like cheering, you know, you're, you're like Dr. Evil right in the chair and the artificial intelligence <laughs> machines are around you. I know it's not like that, but what, when, when IBM's in the, in the AI game and you're putting, I mean, they're putting a senior executive in this role. Like, what is that saying to the world? I mean, uh, so they're putting a senior executive in this role so that, you know, we get a consistent, you know, course of action across the whole company. Mm-hmm. So across IBM research, across our consulting team, IBM consulting, IBM software, IBM infrastructure. Yeah, okay. So we work continuously across there. So that's kind of job one. And we show up at customers all saying the same thing, doing the same thing instead of competing against each other. So, mm-hmm. so that's job one. The other, the other reason is, is that, you know, part of my job is to bring the company around some core key together on core key areas. And one of them is what you mentioned, right? This concept of human centered AI and AI governance, you know, IBM is known as a company you can trust for, you know, we've been around for over hundred years you know, one thing you can count on IBM is you can trust them, right? Um, and, and so there used to be a saying, you'll never get fired for, for hiring IBM, right? Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, it's, and we have some pretty stringent ethical principles when it comes to AI. Uh, and so, you know, AI should be used to augment human intelligence. Uh, you know, your data is your, is your data. Um, and, and so we wanted to make sure that our 
the way we, you know, the way not only that we talk about AI, but the way we actually show up in the world mm-hmm. is aligned to that. And so mm-hmm. putting humans first, right? So when I say human-centered AI, it's when you're building AI, start with the human, don't start with the technology. So who's going to be intimate, ultimately impacted by that AI? Who's mm-hmm. going to be using it? May or may not be the same person. What's that AI being used to being built to be used for in the first place? Where is it going to be deployed? Uh, and how's it going to be deployed? These are all really important questions. And if you start with those questions from the human, you can start getting into things like, okay, hmm. for this use case, when I'm talking about impacting this human for this decision, what type of biases do I need to worry about? So what are the, we call them protected classes. What are the protected classes that hmm. we need to worry about such that we don't introduce bias that's going to you know, impact someone's, negatively impact someone's health, wealth, or livelihood? Those are really oh, the... Yeah. the just, so, so that, that's a big focus for us. I, I love that because I think one of the things of the concerns about AI that I read about is that one, it's businesses are incentivized to grow AI because there's so much possibility, but yet it's one of those spheres where it's not really regulated globally. Like what's happening? What are people willing to do? And I think it's really cool that even though the government entities aren't necessarily stepping into that space as much, a global company like IBM obviously is recognizing that to the degree that they've created an, an executive position. What's your yeah, perspective and, and, there? And, and, you know, and we, we've, we've already shifted the market in this space, right? So over a year ago, we said, we will not do general purpose facial recognition software. We just will not wow. do it. Okay. And we, so we actually hmm. took a product off the market and then the industry followed suit. Um, and so, you know, so you, so you're seeing us leading the market in this space and, and, and you actually are seeing regulations emerge, uh, in Europe. So there's an EU, uh, AI act that's been proposed. There's regulation around hiring in New York city, mm-hmm. some coming up in California, there's regulation about biometric, you know, they use of biometric data for AI in Illinois. So you're seeing all of these regulations come up and, and quite honestly, as long as the regulation is written correctly, it's a really good thing. And, and what do I mean by written correctly? So regulation for AI should be precise, meaning it should regulate specific outcomes and not just general AI technologies. Because if you try and regulate general AI technologies, you're leaving a whole lot of things that just aren't risky, you know, mm-hmm. and under a high, potentially highly regulated area. And, and, and if you think about, you know, I already kind of mentioned the areas that, that I think, you know, need some consideration for regulation. And if it impacts a human's health, if it impacts a human's wealth, or yeah. if it impacts their livelihood, there needs to be some regulation. And, and there probably also should be a human involved in the deci- ultimate decision that the AI is driving. So, you know, I, I think I think those are that's important to keep in mind. So, so I'd love to get your, get your perspective on this. Number one, the difference between AI versus machine learning. Yeah. So, so AI is a marketing term. Right. So essentially, AI has become a marketing term these days. You know, artificial intelligence is, is any think of it, any math that's used to mimic some degree human intelligence. Now, bucketed under AI, when we talk about AI, there's there's a whole lot of things. So some people even consider, you know, rules based. So we'll call symbolic uh, AI. That's that's rules. So you set rules, you mm-hmm. establish them, and you build a process off of it. And it, and it is it is to a certain extent artificial intelligence. Um and then you get into machine learning uh, and deep learning, which is a subset of machine learning. And this mm-hmm. is where you program 
using statistical models, but you build them in such a way that they then learn off of the data continuously. Yeah, yeah. The difference between statistics and machine learning, oftentimes it's the same algorithms. Statistic is, is kind of retrospective. You're saying, here's what happened, and here is, you know, here's, here's how you can think what's going to happen moving forward because of what's happened in the past. And you kind of build that model, and then that's the end of it. Mm-hmm. And until about 10 years ago, that was about as far as you can go because the resource, compute resources and the data wasn't there to go much beyond that. Today, when we talk about machine learning, we extend those concepts from statistics and we start looking at, okay, how do we continue to have those models learn over time uh, and continue to make predictions based on new data as it's coming in? And so their models are learning and growing. Indeed. So, so I, I, I want to interject on that because you bring up a really good point about how they're learning and how they work from a, from a, from a statistic standpoint. Say I'm a, I'm a, let's just say I'm like a 30-year-old in the business world or maybe even earlier. And I'm thinking, okay, ideally I would have a job and career that was not going to be massively disrupted and replaced by AI. Uh, what fields do you think are going to, and I know I'm asking you to predict something that who the heck knows, right? But if just based on where you're sitting today, what do you think the, the fields where, like if I'm a human, this is going to be a great place for me to be over the next 10 years, considering what's coming on versus yeah. hey, these areas are going to be massively disrupted. You, you know, I think, well, I think every area is going to be massively disrupted by the implementation okay. of AI. And, and I think, you know, AI really should be focused on augmenting human intelligence for the most part. So how do we enable humans to do more value-added work? Uh, so, you know, with, with a few exceptions, I'm not sure, you know, outside of traditional blue-collar manufacturing, you know, supply chain jobs, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of risk for humans getting, you know, AI out of a job. You know, we had the same kind of, you know, back, hundred years ago during the industrial revolution, there was the same fear. People were going to get worked out of jobs. Now, are certain types of jobs going to go away? Probably. So there needs to be an effort to reskill people so that people that come from traditionally blue, our prior CEO, Ginny Rometty initiated what we call the new collar jobs initiative. And this is again, focused on taking people from, who are from traditionally blue collar families. So children of blue collar uh, workers, um, and giving them opportunities to mm-hmm. learn these new skills. So to learn about software development, learn about design, learn about security, infrastructure, data science. So these are all mm-hmm. kind of big programs that we've built through something we call P-TECH, which started here in the, or in the New York area, getting into apprenticeships. So like an electrician apprentice, we have apprenticeships for data scientists, for design, where they're 24 month or less programs where you actually work for IBM as an apprentice with people who are doing this, you learn how to do it. And when you're done, you're prepared and qualified for a job. And in some cases, I'd argue probably more qualified than someone coming out of college because you've been doing the work while you're learning as opposed to just sitting and learning it from books. Um, And so- And and, AI apprenticeship. Yep. That just sounds so cool. (laughs) Yep. There's a certified U.S. Department of Labor certified data science or AI apprenticeship that we have here in the U.S. that IBM built for the U.S. Department of Labor that's being used broadly wow. by many companies. And it's even expanding around the world. So other countries have adopted the same kind of, kind of program. Get a simple tool to approximate your cost of turnover in 10 seconds or less. 
Right now, go to benfanning.com slash turnover. Did you know the average cost of turnover is $235,975 per employee per year? If you're like most leaders, you don't know your number. Go to benfanning.com slash turnover right now and download the simple tool to start getting a handle on this catastrophic cost. Wow. Yeah, what a, what a cool way to go about it. So it sounds like you all are being very proactive in that, knowing that, 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 that the disruption is going to be big and the fact that you're going to be able to sort of get ahead of that. Um, that is really, really interesting stuff. Now, I asked from a career perspective. Now, from a business leader perspective, let's say you've got a thousand employees and you're like in a service industry, uh, or maybe you're like some kind of like, like working in a tech company, and you're like, you know what? We are. I am reading the, the the Wall Street Journal on AI, but what what do I need to really be doing? And what are the questions that I need to be asking myself to just be able to take part? And this big transition that's starting to go on with AI. Yeah, and, and it's really, really important question for business leaders to ask themselves because you know PwC recently released a study not too long ago that says by 2030, AI will add 15.7 trillion dollars with a T to the economy. Uh, oh. and, and so you know that's that's a lot of money that's on the table for for businesses and, and society to get value from. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it gets back to that human-centered approach, right? So over the course of the last 10 years since I've been doing this at a previous company, you know, actually executing it for the company and at IBM, executing these kinds of projects, both for IBM and helping our customers do it, mm-hmm. I developed a methodology that really is basically and how to build an AI strategy. And, and it starts mm-hmm. with it starts with the human. And it starts with understanding and, and it starts with the business strategy, actually. So what is your business strategy and how can AI help you get more value from your business strategy? Because if your AI strategy isn't connected to your business strategy, you have a problem, right? And so we sit with you know, senior executives in the organizations or they can do this themselves. Um, and we help to extract what are the specific use cases, the specific decisions or outcomes that, you know, that help that business strategy. And by and, and the good thing about it is each decision a company makes has a value, dollars and cents. It's either going to make you money or it's going to save you money. And so that enables you to have a business-driven KPI that is, did I in fact make this much money or did I in fact save this much money through AI? So you have, you know, you're no longer talking about the metric is, oh, I have a thousand models or I have 500 APIs. The metric is, did I realize the billion dollars of value from this program that I said I would? Um and from there, you also kind of connect it to the actual people doing the work. So we go through it from a strategy workshop to a technical workshop, which is where we, you know, the, the senior leaders hand it off to the, the mid, mid-level managers and the people executing the work. And you actually build out a roadmap for here are the projects we're going to execute, even getting down to here are the sprints that mm-hmm. we're going to execute to get value. And the ultimate goal is to start demonstrating value often. Uh, and you know, our, our, our hands and my experience is if you do it right, you can demonstrate value every six weeks. So you start with what the business outcomes that you're trying to get anyway, and then you're yep. trying to make sure before you do anything with AI, that you're linking that back, uh, to the, to the bigger strategy. And what I liked about what you said was, Hey, try to do something initially that's going to generate some short-term benefit. 
A lot mm-hmm. of times probably people are like swinging for the fences right out of the gate and it, maybe it's a mess. And so yeah. starting small. And well, I, I don't say necessarily start small. Okay. I think so you can start with swinging for the fences, but any project can be broken down into incremental parts that in and of themselves have value. Yeah. And so even if you're swinging, and I, and I don't recommend swinging for the fences, just to be clear, but if you do, <laughs> right, if you do uh-huh. swing for the fences right off the bat, you got to kind of define deliverables in six week intervals that will mm-hmm. demonstrate some, some sort of value. Something, right? yes. Something. So, and, and because What's an area where people would be like really surprised. They're like, you're like, hey, you wouldn't believe this, but they're using artificial intelligence in. Um, I mean, what what industry? You know, I think um, oil and gas uses a lot of artificial intelligence to figure hmm. out where they, you know, energy companies in general use a lot of artificial intelligence. Um, your cell phone networks, right? Cellular carriers. There's a tremendous amount of AI that goes into making sure that, you know, you can always connect your cell phone. Um, I wear hearing aids, right? My hearing aids are, you know, they have their resample the environment every six milliseconds so that they can tune the background noise and readjust the directional microphones to make sure I get the optimal sound. Wow. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, there's AI all around us and we interact with AI all the time without even, without even realizing it. So I, I could talk to you about AI literally, I think for the next three or four hours. But I do not want to miss your interesting background. Now, I have taught to some people in this space informally, and it seems like they were into like science fiction really early on when they were like kids and whatnot. Is it how, what, where did you like, if you think back over your childhood, where did you get the bug for science? So I'm in that camp that I've been reading science it. fiction. I've been reading science fiction books since I was a kid, you know, yeah. Isaac Asimov, Robert cool. Heinlein. Um, you know, you, you name it. I've read every one of their books multiple times probably. Wait, wh- uh, read who? who Isaac it? Asimov or or Robert Heinlein? Yep. So, uh, yeah, so I've read every one of their books multiple times. <laughs> what do you uh, what what do you think from a science fiction like if you were interested and sort of inspiring the next generation of scientists, where do you think sort of the best place to start for kids? I have an 11 year old. That's why I'm asking too. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so, so my, I mean, my kids are adults now. And even, even back when they were kids, you know, I, I'd say, I, I, I can't even say I encourage them to take coding classes. I required them to take coding classes, not because I want, not because I wanted them to be software developers, but because given what I had been doing, you know, I saw the writing on the wall that AI is going to become an integral part of our lives. And AI is basically instantiating, you know, some form of intelligence through computer code. And I felt it was really important for their future that they at least, I don't expect them to be able to write it. They should be able to at least look at it and understand it. And I think everyone in society should have to take at least one program class because that really enables you to get a better understanding for what we're talking about. And if you're in a business sense, at some point, you're going to be working with a data scientist or a software developer. It enables you to have a much more intelligent conversation with them and adds you to have more value and more engagement with your job. Mm. Well, I'm going to require that of my daughter. She's going to say, Daddy, why haven't you taken that? So I'm going to have to take it too. You're going to have to take it with her. Thanks, Seth. Yeah. All right. All right. So, uh, 
I mean, it's, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Like, why does no, it seems like no hardcore AI machine learning expert recommends Star Wars? It's like, is it, is it just too not sciencey Every, enough? Everyone, everyone's seen it. I mean, you just ah, assume that everyone's seen it's, it. It's, so at least okay. I do. I didn't. I mean, just part I thinking, of living yeah, and I, breathing. What, what Star Wars, you know, I watched it. I'm old enough to have watched it when it came out in 1975, <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> yes. And remember right. it. Watch it and remember it. All right. So young Seth starting out, you know, you're you're getting down on all the science fiction. And you don't go computers immediately. You go deep, but it, but it wasn't as hot then. So what was your sort of just, just sort of like in a nutshell? Yeah. From kid to pursuing PhD. Kind yeah. Of, so kind of like so it. it's actually it's actually much more convoluted than you read in my CV. So <laughs> in, in, in high school, I wanted to be a naval architect. So I wanted hmm. to design boats and then I wanted to design houses and buildings. And then hmm. I wanted to get into environmental law. And while I was studying to, you know, undergraduate for environmental law, kind of, you know, I, I had to take some, taken philosophy classes and I had to take some biology classes and I really liked mm. the biology classes. And so that kind of led me down that road. I like philosophy too. I took a lot of philosophy classes also as a kind of minor, but um, so kind of led me down this road to get into, into genetics. Um, and so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, my, I have a, my PhD, well, my PhD is technically in molecular, you know, molecular biology, Really, it's in in genetics and and heavy in statistical genetics. Mm -hmm. um, so I studied, you know, the the genetic causes and genomic causes of mental illness. Uh, so autism, wow. schizophrenia, mental retardation, bipolar disorder. Um, which and that was at a time when you know I'm sure everyone's heard of like 23andMe or Ancestry. You know, mm -hmm. health. This was at a time when those chips were being developed. I was involved in the development of those, and you went from being able to generate a very small handful of molecular markers of genetic markers that you could very easily analyze. You didn't even need Excel, really. You could just very easily analyze the small numbers to where we were processing millions of molecular markers across thousands of patients to try and do, you know, these what we call genome-wide association studies, which required a whole new set of capabilities. And, and this is actually one of the fields, when we talk about big data, this is one of the fields that big data arose from. So this and astrophysics. So, you know, back in the late 90s, they were also doing the Human Genome Project. You know, we were generating, which today seems relatively small, but hundreds of gigabytes of data. So my dissertation mm -hmm. had multiple hundreds of gigabytes of data. Um, and you had to process those. You couldn't do it in Excel. It was like, you know, it'd be like 50 Excel files. Um, and so we started using computer programming. Most of us started doing Perl, which I don't even think people know about too much anymore. And then R started arising. And so that's R is a very popular language for, for, for AI and data science. And then Python started arising. And so I kind of, you know, I never took a coding class. I've taught myself how to code. In fact, I was talking to someone today and I'm like, I write really bad code. Um, it can solve problems. But, you know, at one point my team told me, you're not allowed to query databases anymore. We'll build you an API because you're going to break stuff. Um, and so shut down um, the grid. <laughs> right. Yeah, stop um, that. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, I taught myself how to do this and I stayed in, in human mm. genetics. Actually, I worked in Motorola for a while, kind of in this microarray field, which is what these genetic chips are. 
uh, worked in startups for a while, worked in academics for a while, all in the human genetics area. And then one day I got a call uh, from a guy named Stan. He's like, hey, I'm Stan Dotson. I'd like you to come work for my company. We're in agriculture. I said, yeah, probably not, but I'll come talk to you. So recommendation is always talk to someone about a job, best, one of the best jobs I ever had. Uh, and I went over to, into agriculture and worked in agriculture for 10 years, the first five years leading the genetics platform there, the second five mm -hmm. years leading the transformation of the company using the tools of data and AI. Uh, and that materialized because we created you know, a tremendous amount of value for the company using combination of molecular markers and machine learning or data science to generate new value for the company. And they said, we need more of that for the rest of the company. So that's kind of how I wound up hmm. in this space. Yeah, what I, what I sensed from your background is a couple of key success factors. And, I, and I'll be curious what you think about this because I'm just, this is just me off the fly. But that you, have, you are a very curious leader and you are curious about big problems. And, but you, instead of just asking questions, you have, because you're early on, you're interested in like building houses and architecture. So you're think you're interested in exploring the problems, but also building something to help solve that problem. And then you took that, you had the curiosity about different industries. So you started balancing from, it sounds like from industry to industry, honing, developing, uh, you know, these tools. Is, is, or, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think on that last part, I think it's important that when people look for new jobs, they look for something where they're going to get value out of it too. So I always tell people I mentor, mm. don't ever apply for anything that you're hundred percent qualified for. The company will get a lot out of it, but you'll get nothing out of it. So you should always mm. kind of look at jobs that you're 60, 70% qualified for because you bring something significant to the table, but you also get something out of it. So that's, that's kind of how I've, I've moved jobs is as I've shifted industries, there's always been some significant portion that I can show up and add value on day one, but then I get value added over the long run. So that's, that's, that's one thing that's probably kind of hidden under my career journey. Uh, the, the, other, cool. the other, that's yeah, totally the, contrary yeah. to a lot of people They they say, Hey, I'm not going to apply for that job because I'm not a hundred percent qualified. And you're saying, Hey, no. look, you know, Part of the benefit to you of taking that job is that you're going to get to develop the other 30%. Everyone needs to grow, or you know, at least I do. I need to grow or I get bored. And so I need to learn and grow. The, the other thing, the, the, the consistent theme, and this was for, for part of my career, this was unintentional, then it become, became intentional. But the consistent theme is you know, taking technologies that, ex that exist, either mature or immature, and industrializing them using data and math to solve big, large business problems at scale. And so that, that's really, really what's been the theme of my career if I, when I look back on it. <laughs> yeah, that's the old Steve Jobs adage of only be able to connect the dots looking back. Yep. Although with AI, who knows? Maybe you'll be able right. to connect them looking forward. You know, I, I, this is a total tangent. And you can say pass on this if this doesn't necessarily resonate. But in a lot of the leadership training uh, that, that, I, that I do with the, uh, executives and their teams, we talk about these, 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 these steps of leadership. And one of the first steps of leadership is to declare a vision for your team and for yep. the company. And in today's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm helping them do that for themselves. I'm wondering if artificial intelligence is going to help them 
declare the visions for their companies and their teams moving forward. And the vision basically being like, the way I think about it is kind of like somewhat Seth Godin says, whereas like management is like leading people on a map. The map already exists, right? And so you don't really need to have a vision because you're just following the steps that people have done and been plotted before by experience where vision is like, what do we do during COVID, right? There is no playbook. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, there, there's a war somewhere where we don't really know how that's going to affect the world. We need to think about the vision for our company differently. So, so, I mean, I think, I think management is following map leadership is not leadership is building the map and, and kind of looking, looking beyond mm-hmm. the horizon. Um, and so, but, you know, I think, I think, it, you know, cause back to what I said, what I kind of IBM's position and my position on AI, I, AI should for the most part augment human intelligence. And so certainly you can use data and you can use AI to kind of lay the foundation for what a vision could be. And, and yes, theoretically, today, AI could write a vision if you put some concepts in there. So it could do the writing. Um, But I really think it's important for us as humans to be the one setting the vision, because as leaders, especially senior leaders, you need to set you need to set visions, a vision that pushes the boundaries. And so it would be beyond what an AI could predict. So if I was going to use AI to set a vision, I would say, okay, the AI says the vision can be here. We need to go another 50 feet further because Realistically, we're probably not never going to make it there. So if we get most of the way there, we've really still succeeded. And so in my in my mind, you know, if you're going to use AI, it should be this is the mid, this is the bottom, the low point of a vision. Right. I always told my kids, don't shoot for mediocrity because you'll achieve it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, where do you and again take a pass on this if you want to? Uh, because I've had this conversation before until this moment, and you may have already been having it, but so we talked about leadership vision and AI. Are there any spaces where, Hey, like I'm leading a team and I need to be thinking about not necessarily from a company standpoint, but from a leadership standpoint, how, how is AI going to augment leadership? So, I mean, we've been saying, I've been saying this for years, right? AI is not going to replace managers or leaders, but managers or leaders who use AI will replace those that don't. And so I think, you know, think, think about how AI can make your team more successful, how it can make you a better manager, um, how it can add new value to your team. And I always, you know, I, I, for, you, know, you need to focus on AI should help people, help you make people's lives better, cheaper, or faster. And so think about how you can make your teams and your customers' lives better, cheaper, or faster. Mm. Lovely. I really, really like that. All right. So a couple more questions here, then we'll get you on your merry way. Uh, let's take it. Let's take it personal here. What is a tool or gadget that's been helpful to you recently that listeners could go out and purchase? <laughs> oh boy. That's a really good, um, really good question. Um, I have so many gadgets that that's hard to say. Share as many as you, as you want, um, or you can share. Yeah. So, so for the older listeners, right. Or, or maybe not even older. So I reference my hearing aids. My wife has been telling me for years that you need hearing aids, right? You're deaf. I can't, you know, much more, much more aggressive or not aggressive, but much more direct than that. And during COVID because of masks, I had no choice. And so I think if your spouse has been telling you, you need hearing aids, it's the be- one of the best decisions I've ever made. Plus they're cool. I can stream music to them. I can hmm. take phone calls from them. They have a translation function. 
So, you know, so a translation have, function they can, they can tra using my phone, they can translate and translate people, you know, different languages into my, into my hearing aids. I can access the internet from them. So I can, you know, tap on them and say, what time is it? What year is it? Ask a question just like you would Siri or Alexa. Um, and so, so they're, they're super, super cool. My kids tell me, man, my, my family tells me I'm by, I have bionic now. So, so um, one of the challenges, so my dad has hearing aids and one of the challenges that he has with them is that, uh, like in restaurants, you know, do, do, do the newer ones help in a restaurant environment? Yeah. Oh, ab absolutely. Absolutely. They do. Okay. They do. Absolutely. I mean, I, 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 in fact, I got my hearing aids and the next day we went out to dinner with friends and we were sitting at a table, like 12 people. It was a birthday party and we're sitting in the middle of the table. And all of a sudden I look at my wife and I'm like, Tabitha, I, I can hear everyone. I can hear what they're all saying. She's like, yeah, that's normal. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. How cool. That's any so, specific brand that you recommend or, or kind well, of. I, I, I guess I'm a little biased because these are the ones I have, but I have Starkey hearing aids. Uh, Okay. But uh, there's not a lot, not a lot of companies, but, but anyway, I think cool. so. So, I mean, if, if you need them, hearing aids, um, mm -hmm. I, I recently, I, I travel a lot, uh, as we were talking about before the podcast, I recently got a nice pair of, you know, Bose noise canceling headphones, um, that, uh, that are really nice. Um, but nothing I'm trying to think I, and I, I like smart home, so I have a smart home. I think everyone should should invest it, invest a little bit in, in smart home, and it's kind of fun. And you know, you can you forget to turn your lights on or lock your door or things like that. Never come home to a dark house. Yeah, is that the, is that I was going to ask? What is the smart home feature that you find yourself using the most? Is it the lights, the lights piece, or? Yeah, so so it gets back to we don't even know we're using AI. You don't once you get one of these things, you don't even know it, right? Lights go on and off every day at the same time. When we go to bed, I say, you know, hey, turn on good night. And my bedroom lights go off, the outside lights go on, the doors all locked, the garage doors are all closed. So even if the doors aren't locked, you know, all those. So it's, you know, so I think good night is the is the smartest. The, the, but that's, you know, there's a lot of feet, a lot of functions under that under that statement. So good night is the brand. No, no, that's, no. That's what I say. That's what oh, that's I your say. That's turn your on good night. It's it's a smart thing. Samsung smart things is what I use. Okay. Well, or I mean, Alexa, Apple Home Kit, they all have. There, there's a lot they, of. They all integrate with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Wow. Well, listen, Seth, this has been a terrific and very fun and interesting interview. Uh, what is a parting thought that you'd like to leave uh, with the listeners today? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it gets back to what you asked me about kind of managers and leaders, you know, as as managers and leaders, it, it's important that we start thinking about how our businesses and our teams can be accelerated and augmented by AI. But, you know, you have to keep the human in mind. If you don't think about who AI is going to, who's going to be impacted by the AI and how, who's going to be using it and how it's going to be used, ultimately you will probably not get good adoption. And ultimately you'll be more susceptible to creating biased AI, because if you don't really understand who the human is being impacted by it, you don't really understand what you need to do to mitigate bias for that use case. And then also keep in mind, even absent any current regulation, there is going to be regulation for things that impact health, wealth, or livelihood. So you should start thinking about that today and how you're going to govern AI in a way that enables you to have assurance 
as a senior leader that your AI is being delivered in a trustworthy manner. Yeah, great, great points there. It's not just about the AI, it's about the human connection with the AI. And that's where the leadership piece starts. Great, great points there, Seth. Thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. It's a lot of fun. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.